0: go here we are with episode number 51 of the principles of performance podcast i am your host eric degati along with my friend and co-host mike perry and mike i am giving you full credit for this episode uh good <laughs> or bad because you have turned me on to to this guy's work uh, mr devin mcconnell and uh you you coordinated the whole thing so i'll let you kind of kick this thing off
1: i uh- I actually didn't coordinate anything. You actually took care of it. I just know Devin because, uh, you know, Devin's a friend of mine when he was at U Lowell. I don't want to steal your thunder with with the uh, bio here, but when he was working 10 minutes from the gym, he was my my, uh, talk shop beer drinking buddy where we'd talk shop and drink a beer and you know, that would be, that's what we did. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, we were able to get together quite a bit and we've known each other for, for quite some time. And, and look, he's one of the best in the, he's one of the best in the industry, man. He's, uh, not only does he understand the in-depth stuff, but he can make it, uh, digestible for the people like myself that don't understand the big words. So, uh, we're, we're fortunate to have this guy, uh, on the podcast today, but I'll let you go ahead and finish up with the official bio because I don't want to steal anyone's thunder.
0: Well, you certainly have no shortage of drinking buddies, do you, Perry?
1: Well, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's one of those things, right? You just, um, you know, he's really good at it. So am I. So we figured we'd team up, you know? (laughs)
0: Talent sees talent. That's it. Um, so, so the official bio on Devin, he's the, he's the high performance director for the Arizona Coyotes in the NHL. And he was previously down here with me in New Jersey with the Devils, where he's the director of performance and science and reconditioning. And prior to his time here in Jersey, he was, as you said, the head of... Uh, hockey performance and sports science at University of uh, Massachusetts Lowell. Uh, he's also previously served uh, at sport as a sports performance coordinator out at Stanford with Smart Kids uh, from 2008 to 2011, where we were closely with women's basketball as well as men's and women's volleyball programs. And during his time at Stanford, the women's basketball competed in three consecutive Final Fours, while the women's volleyball team competed in two Final Fours, and men's volleyball won the 2010 NCAA championship. Um, once Mike turned me turned me on to devin i immediately grabbed his book here intent which i have right here where he co-authored with justin rothlin's uh um i hope i said that right and uh it's an awesome book so we're really excited to talk to him Devin, welcome to the show
2: thank you very much for having me on guys i appreciate it looking forward to it
0: absolutely so uh mike I, i don't remember if you have the first question or do i here let me check
1: i i have it perfect all right. Are we ready to go or what? Or do you need to get organized to Let's go. I'm just no, we're you. all
0: good. It's, this is your show. This is all your thing here. <laughs> all
1: right. Well, so this is kind of funny because well, I know the answers, but I'm just going to, for our guests, for, you know, all of our millions of listeners, they want to hear the story. So, um, so Devin, you've been working in pro hockey for years. Um, how much of your own career as a player helped you with becoming the coach that you are now? And then we're going to have a follow-up to that.
2: <laughs> Sounds good. Um- I mean, I think the idea of like, you always get this question, is it beneficial or is it necessary to play the sport that, you know, potentially you work in? And and to me, the answer is it's yes and no. Um, there's, uh, I know a lot of good practitioners in, you know, I work in, in ice hockey primarily at this point. Like I know practitioners that um, have never played ice hockey that are unbelievable performance coaches in ice hockey. Uh, and at the same time, there's a lot of guys that, you know, vice versa. I, I played the game. I was a goaltender. I played at the college level. Um, I think it's, it's helpful from the standpoint of understanding the, the culture of the sport, understanding some of the nuances. Again, those aren't things that can't be learned, but it, it's, it's probably helpful to have an idea, you know, having grown up in the game, um, understand some of the, uh, like I said, the nuances of, you know, like the skating stride and, um, is very different uh, has some similarities and differences from you know land-based sprinting so it's it's important to kind of understand those things um, you know what goaltenders do as an example in ice hockey is very unique so having been a goaltender I think there's some some benefit there but again I, I think it can kind of go either way those are things that are learnable um, but you know it, it always helps to be able to speak the speak the language with the players be able to speak the language with the coaches um, so uh, yeah you know as a as a net positive, I think there's, there's benefit to, to have played the game.
1: Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Um, so how much, and you'd have to put a number on it really, but so, um, how much do you feel that playing the sport in the past has impacted your ability to be a performance coach? And now I know there's several different components of this, but, um, do you feel like, you know, playing the game and, and competing, um, do you feel like one that has truly allowed you to really get the feel of the demands of, of what the sport does on the body? But do you also think maybe it provides a bit more credibility when you are working with pros because they know that you've been on the ice and you've played the game?
2: Yeah. I mean, I, there is, there is a layer to that. I think, again, it's a nuanced question and answer because once the, once the athletes trust you um, then it doesn't matter if you've, you've played the game or not. I think it can be helpful day one to getting trusted buy-in from players um, at this level. But you know, what, uh, one of the things I find with 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 professional athletes is at the end of the day um, they want help performing at the highest level and whether or not you play the game, if you can demonstrate your ability to help them you know, achieve those types of goals. But yeah, like, again, I, I think it does matter. You know, there was a, when I, when I worked in New Jersey, um, you know, I was kind of the, the uh, took that role and was kind of obviously like low man on the totem pole, new guy in the room, just starting to get to know guys. And I probably was able to grab a little bit of credibility and, and build some trust quickly uh, just because I ended up practicing with the team a couple of times when we had a goalie that was out sick and they, they needed somebody to shoot pucks at. Um, And the guys all of a sudden went from, you know, not knowing who I was, who's a sports science guy in the corner in the weight room to all of a sudden, like, oh, like, you actually can play the game and I can shoot pucks off your head. Like, oh, okay, I'll listen to you a little more. So I think there's a layer of that for sure that can build some some early credibility. But again, at the end of the day, like, if I wasn't good at what I did, but I played the game, they could sniff that out too. So, you, you know, both parts are, are certainly important.
0: So when you, you know get what, to the, that- I'm sorry, go sorry, ahead, Mike. You, but-
1: I was just gonna say all I can think of is like you in the uh in that sort of you know, put you into the position that Adam Sandler was in, where you're like, you know, you're in the batting cage and you're like six more weeks till hockey season, gotta toughen up. <laughs> That's pretty much what you did, but these guys were ripping slap shots at you. So um, hey, props to you for getting in there because uh people don't realize what a hundred mile an hour shot or catch or something feels like in general when it's coming at you. People don't realize what 60 miles an hour feels like. Never mind, a hundred miles an hour and props to you for getting in there and, and uh, taking those licks because I'm sure, I'm sure you felt it the next day, regardless of all the padding.
2: Yeah, it's, it's actually terrifying. I have no interest in going back out there with these guys. They, <laughs> they're way, too, way too fast. They shoot way too hard. There's it. Uh, I'm glad I got to experience it at this level, but I'm, I'm good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so sort of a segue from that um, would be like when you get to that level, and this is really any sport is how much you're going to make them better uh, is is really marginal because everybody there is so so gifted and talented so it's not as much as much about about bigger faster stronger as it would be at the lower levels, but the big piece of it is someone in your role is keeping the talent in the game and, and keeping them injury free so the term uh, load management has now become kind of big part of the the focus and it's actually become part of the lexicon of even the most casual sports fan when they see their NBA star sitting in a suit at a game. Um, can you better define what that means and, and starting with kind of defining what internal load is?
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. You're hundred percent right at this level. That nobody cares if the guy can squat anything it, that doesn't matter at all. It's about keeping guys on the ice. Um internal load is really uh, a measurement of the um, the internal physiological demands on an action so as an example if the three of us go for a, a mile run and we all run it in the exact same amount of time if we're measuring you know the usually the way that we would measure internal load is with with a heart rate system so if we all go for a mile run and or a race and we literally the three of us tie Um, but it, you know, I had to work at 95% of my max heart rate and you guys were at 85 and 75%. My internal load would be much higher. Like it cost me more to do the same thing. So that's really what internal load is looking at is what is the body's physiological response to something, to the game, to practice, to training. Um, so it's a way to measure, um, how much you know? How essentially how much work was done? It would be like in a car. It's looking at you know the RPMs and and gas mileage, right? We could all drive again. Same idea. We could all drive a hundred miles, um, and you know depending on the size of the engine and you know uh, how fast we were going and all these things. You know I might get there and be bare, you know basically on empty, and you guys might be there with with half a tank of gas. It cost me more internally to do the same job. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell. That's what internal load is uh, talking about but again heart rate is the sort of typical sports science tool that we would utilize but you can use um session rpe uh pretty accurately if, if you don't have access to those types of tools where you're essentially just um rating you know rating of perceived exertion um and then you multiply that by the the time um and that'll give you an indicator of internal load as well
0: So I'm going to jump in here, Mike, before you get to your next question is, is kind of two parts to follow up on that, Devin is, is one is, do you see anecdotally correlations where the guys who have to continually run at higher RPMs to get the same things done, do they get injured more often? Um, And then kind of the second part of that is then the response to that. Most of your training to get them to be more efficient and economical so they can get more done with less effort.
2: Yeah. So uh, there's sort of two, two parts to that. Um, all things being equal, uh, if, if you've got two athletes and, uh, it, you know, it costs one guy more to do the same job. So his internal load is higher. Um, assuming that that is a, you know, basically a fitness issue, then yes, like the less, you know, from a very general perspective, the less fit you are, the, the, you know, harder it is for you to do stuff, the more wear and tear there is over time. Um, so you're more apt to break down or, to you know, get into a bad position and get injured. So yes, uh, lower internal load between two, you know, equal individuals or, you know, the same individual at different points in time will be correlated with a, a lower incidence of injury. That being said, uh, internal load is extremely individual. So there are, I've had plenty of athletes that, well, you know, we say they run hot and, um, they have very high internal load metrics. They operate at a very high, you know, percentage of, of, max heart rate, those types of things. And that's just who they are. That's their signature. They're not out of shape, um, improving cardiovascular fitness and all of the conditioning work that we would do doesn't necessarily change that that's, they could be in incredibly good shape to play ice hockey and that's just how their body operates. So it's not necessarily, you can't necessarily compare one guy to the next. You have to compare the same guy to the same guy, all of that being said, yes, you know, basically being in poor shape, um, uh, will have a higher incidence of, of injury risk. And then there's a the second part, but I don't remember that at this point.
0: So then does, <laughs> is most of your focus is or at least part of your focus in injury prevention, then improve their economy of, of not only their, their, you know, conditioning and their aerobic fitness and, uh, uh economy, but also their their movement efficiency
2: without question. yeah, and in all reality, probably more so on the movement efficiency standpoint than the um, you know energy system development standpoint, especially at this level, um, you know, one of the things our guys, whether it's for better or worse, they will skate almost all summer long at this point. Um, it didn't used to be the case. there used to be a much more in ice hockey, Uh, a much bigger need for sort of off ice um, conditioning work Um, in ice hockey. Again, for better or worse, there's pros and cons to it, but most, most players will, will be on the ice. um, Maybe not 12 months a year, but for a a pretty significant chunk of the off season. So we certainly do program specific energy system work and you know, periodize that over the course of the off season and um, assess and monitor that in season. But that stuff mostly takes care of itself. But from a movement efficiency standpoint, um, that's incredibly important. The the more efficient we can help athletes be from a movement technique ability from a force application standpoint, you know, all of those things, those will, um, go a long way into a improving cardiovascular uh, response. You know, if, if a player can get into better positions and move more effectively and produce force appropriately, um, the cost of them moving around on the ice will, will be lower. Uh, They'll have to work, you know, less hard. So uh, quote unquote, to, to get the job done. Um, But it's also going to lead to less wear and tear joints and, and um, you know, muscles and, and um, things like that. So there, again, that'll help to reduce the incidence of injury. So that's a big component of what we look at.
1: So we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, You know, a big part of sports science is capturing metrics and understanding what to do with those metrics. Um, and these days, I'm sure everybody that you're working with is you're you're able to capture as much metrics as you really need. But let me ask you this, um, have you found that there are some times where giving the feedback or the feedback from the wearables can actually be detrimental to the mindset of the athlete?
2: Yeah, without question. Um, we do, we, we have access to a lot of different tools and technologies. We're really fortunate um, here in Arizona in our organization is um is very um you know, pro sports science and pro strength and conditioning, so um, we have access to to resources here um, that are pretty fun to play with when you're in our shoes. Um, but there's no question, like um, paralysis by analysis can be an issue, so you have to be very careful with what information do you you know provide to the athlete. Um, we're very transparent. If an athlete wants to see any of the data, it's it's their data. That's very important to me. But at the same time. Um, you don't want to overwhelm them with things that are not going to be um, well understood or going to cause confusion, things like that. And there can be, I mean, millions of different metrics that you could potentially look at with all the different technologies. And that's certainly not helpful. So there's absolutely times when um, the data is not beneficial or um, it's not conducive for the athlete to see that, you know, uh, as an example, we do force plate, um, jumping, we use force plates all the time, multiple times a week. Um, the athletes generally uh, enjoy that. They compete. They try to beat each other with how high they get and things like that. We look I look sort of under the hood at some metrics that help me better understand their response um, to load, uh, to what their fatigue levels are. Those aren't necessarily things that I share with them um, up front, because especially during the in-season in the NHL, you play almost every other day. So if metrics are telling me that this player is pretty neurologically fatigued and we have a game tomorrow, that's probably not something that I want to necessarily, depending on the person, share completely with them. But maybe try to guide them to some more, you know, regen and recovery options post-practice as an example. Um, So it's it's not necessarily telling them, hey, you look like absolute dog crap today. Like uh, we got to do something about it. Like that's going to spook some guys. Um, but using that information on the back end to say, okay, like we need to make sure that we're, you know, emphasizing A, B and C from a recovery protocol with, with Johnny, because you know, he's clearly pretty fatigued from the last couple games. We need to manage that.
0: So continuing on that theme, you know, the old expression is the numbers don't lie, but is that always the case when you're looking at the external load? Is it, it you know, you talked about the internal load and the individuality. Now, is there also the same thing where some guys will actually thrive under more pressure situations or thrive in, in the big game, so to speak? So um, engaging how you have to measure that in, in the you know balance of how much is enough and how much is too much or too little, how much can we really rely on external load being different from one person to the next?
2: Yeah, I mean, I do agree the lumber numbers don't lie, but they don't provide all the context. So context is really important you know. From a, a data analytics, sports science standpoint, um, we're very cognizant that uh, any of the metrics that we collect and look at, they don't dictate anything we do. They provide information so we can make more informed decisions. Um, and a good example of that is is from an external load standpoint, we look at essentially GPS on the ice. It's, it's a slightly different technology. But so we can see, you know, how far does a player skate? How fast do they skate? Um, all of these different things uh, on the ice from an external loading standpoint, how much are they doing? Well, just because a player has skated further than they did last game or further than other players on the team, that's not necessarily a good thing. It could be a good thing, or it could mean they're wildly out of position all the time. So they have to skate farther to get back into the play. The number itself doesn't lie. They've, they've skated this far, but why have they skated that far? So understanding the context and and asking questions behind what that information is, is, is really, really important because, um, there's, yeah, there's lots of instances where, you know, even I talked about force plates earlier, a player's jump height could increase, but their force output or their left to right force asymmetry, uh, be off. So just because they've jumped higher, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, things are better. Um, it could be that they're changing their strategy uh, because they're competitive athletes, so they're trying to you know they're trying to win the test. Um, but they're changing how they do it. And again, those data points and that that story behind behind the data is really important to understand and and um, have a better feeling of what's actually going on with the athlete.
0: Now we're going to circle back later to talking about the integration between skill staff and in your performance staff. But when you say how some of these metrics will help drive decision making, you have to obviously do that within the balance of saying how, you know, how much can we push to make sure that we we're we're ready and that we were have the 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 physical capacity to handle what we need to but also make sure we look at the long run that you have a really long season um and we have to look at the the long game not just hey could we could we get through tonight yeah sure we could but that may end up not helping us 3 months from now so how do you balance that when you you're not the only one making that decision because you have to make it from a skill and talent perspective as well
2: yeah absolutely um it's 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 an ever ongoing conversation right so my role Part of my role as the as high performance director is to connect different stakeholders, the different departments um, within the organization, bring data into the conversation and create conversation and create dialogue. Um, so I, I will go up, you know, on an in-season uh, example, like on a daily basis, I'll, I will take a look at our load management data, um, you know, how much we've done, how much do we plan to do. Um, you know, has there been any wrenches thrown into the process with travel or sleep or all of these things? We'll sort of factor all these pieces into, um, what we might consider readiness for the athletes. And then I'll go and have a conversation with the coaching staff, um, on a day-to-day basis and say, Hey, you know, this is where we thought we were going to be at this point in the week or in the month. Uh, this is where we're at, um, from a physiological perspective, you know, I recommend that we stay on track we pull back a little bit uh, or, you know what, we're in a a window where if you need to hit the gas pedal a little, this is a great opportunity. And then the coaching staff, you know, goes around and around and they say, you know, that's great. Um, Makes sense. I think we'll cut a drill out of practice today. Um, If you're saying that, you know, guys are a little fatigued or, okay, perfect. This is an opportunity that we can, you know, we need to work on power play a little bit. So if you're telling us, you know, we're in a good place and we can spend some more time, um, or, you know, they might say that that all sounds really good. Devin, uh, go pound sand. We're going to do this today. Okay. No problem. My, my job is to bring the information, uh, forward. Uh, fortunately we have an unbelievable staff here and group where it's a very collaborative process. They're going to come down, uh, into our, our, you know, training facility. They want to know our head coaches. He wants to know the information. He wants to know, um, where we're at from a data standpoint. He wants to know where we're at from a, you know, uh, my, my head strength coach is an unbelievable, uh, you know, feel guy. He can really get a feel for the guys when they're in the weight room, what their attitude is, what their mood is like energy. He's going to, so he's going to come down and want to know like, you know, how's this guy doing? How's he look? Um, and all of that goes into the pot, right? That's really the, the essence of a high performance model is everybody is is bringing their specific, their domain, specific expertise. We throw it into the pot. We have a conversation. Um, a decision is made. We move forward. We analyze, we adjust from there we do the same thing tomorrow. that's kind of what the process looks like, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process
1: for sure. So we're going to switch gears uh, just a little bit and uh, we're going to ask a a little bit of a question uh, regarding your book. Um, and, uh, so one of the benefits of working in pro sports is, you know, most of the time you get a little bit more money to get the goodies, right? You get a, you get a budget where you can get the cool tech and, uh, you can really get access to some really innovative stuff. And, uh, in the book, you do a, you do an awesome job of showing people how to apply those same principles um, to both like an unlimited budget, if you have all this money to spend, or if you just have the basics, where you can just do some simple, you know, use use some chalk, use some tape, etc. Explain some of the positives and negatives of having the shiny toys um, versus some of the more basic stuff. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about that a little bit because uh, not everybody has access to what you have.
2: Yeah, I, the, the book, the, the story behind the book was really to try to apply principles to questions. Um, and then and then what we tried to do with the book was say, okay, if, if we think that this principle is important, if analyzing explosive power is an important component to what you do in your setting, um, then here's a bunch of ways that you can do it based on your budget. Force plates, jump mat, chalk on the wall vertical jump height right um and the reason that that we wanted to to do that was exactly like you said just because we have access to you know tools that have, you know the shiniest tools available um it doesn't necessarily make the process any better and in some ways that can be it can be detrimental right we like i said we we use force plates a lot the force plates we use probably have 250 different metrics that we could choose from to look at we look at three or four you know what i mean um because a there's just no way to look at 250 different things with 23 athletes three times a week it just it would be impossible um two most of those don't matter a lot of that stuff is just it it can it can be measured it doesn't mean that it needs to be measured or should be measured um not to us and maybe in a different setting this some specific metric matters um but we look at two or three things out of that. Now, if you re- uh, um, rewind my, my career 15 years, 10 years ago, and I'm working at UMass Lowell, and I don't have necessarily the same budget, um, but I do think that measuring explosive power output via vertical jumping is an important thing to look at with my players, and I can afford a couple of jump mats. Um, how can I how can I build a system uh, with a... a technology that doesn't provide all of the things that a force plate would, but will still give me information that's usable, that's going to create a conversation. And so that's what, you know, that's what the book was kind of about is okay. The principle is explosive power output and measuring that here's a bunch of different ways to do it. More tech is not necessarily better because it can lead to paralysis by analysis and just a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. Um, Less tech can be just as useful. The jump map provided, I would say, 75% of what I get out of our force plates at this point. There's a little more nuance to what we can do now. Uh, there's a few more things I can look at. Um, you know, it, there's it, the shiny toy has some benefits, but not a huge difference. So you're able to get the same thing if you think, of, think in terms of principles and processes and not necessarily just the technology itself.
0: So two things that you said there that that jump at me and, and that I really like. One is principles. Mike, write that down. Principles. We should use that word somehow, somewhere. Um, uh, hey, wait,
1: isn't that the person that runs the school?
0: <laughs> yeah. A, I used to get sent there like once a week. Um, and then... Uh, but the other thing is system. And, and so a, a couple things to that point is, you know, when Mike and I started putting this together, we did a, a, a beta uh, version of our course and we brought in uh, a bunch of people that were colleagues of ours. Uh, we did one up by Mike in, in the Boston area, one by me in, in New Jersey. We had probably, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 people who were really experienced coaches, trainers, physical therapists that were colleagues of ours who I'm going to say minimum Experience in the room was 10, 15 years. And when we got to our section on on data collection and testing, and we just kind of threw it to the floor and said, who here, like, what is your system? What is your non-negotiables you need to know before you can start with a client or athlete? And we got these blank stares back and we didn't get, and nobody really stood up and said, okay, well, if you walk in the door based on your goals, I always do this. I sometimes do this. And if you have this, then I do this. There was really no... Rhyme or reason to anything that they were doing. Tell me a little bit about, you know, kind of in your process of coming together with the book, um, or even in your own experiences, how you see that same thing where people don't necessarily have a process or a system to why they do the testing. Like all the, like you said, all the tech is cool, but if you're not going to use that data and you don't have a system to actually do something with it, then it it doesn't really matter. It's really just eyewash.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, the process starts with with defining what our key performance indicators are like uh, what, what matters at the end of the day, what physical qualities matter for what we're trying to improve. And in our organization, we, we sort of start with two main areas. We want to, um, improve basically acceleration and speed. So we're very hockey is obviously extremely fast sport. Um, it's getting faster all the time. So we've decided as an organization that speed is really important. So we need to understand speed. We need to monitor speed. We need to understand what are the physiological qualities or the components that create speed and acceleration. And then we need to develop systems to to monitor those, assess those, and then train for those. And then the other side of the equation is what we call being hockey strong. And that's like being able to, you know, physically out- battle somebody in front of the net or in the corner, being able to physically, you know, um, overpower, uh, an opponent. So those are sort of the two big rocks that we start with. And then underneath those, again, we say, okay, well, what is, you know, I'll use speed as the example, um, what, what makes a player fast. And so we're able to, you know, use some of our technology. We can use our force plates to understand what they're sort of, you know, under, under the hood what's their power output, what's their force output, Um, what's their eccentric ability, some of the things we've identified that influence skating speed. And then on the other side, we can do some actual on-ice speed assessment with some technology that we have and look at, in a very specific context, actually sprinting on the ice. What is, again, same things, what are their force output, power output, um, things like that. So we start with, what is the end goal? Trying to make people faster. What are the physical qualities? that we believe, um, or within our system have shown us that influence speed. Okay. Where does this player fall? So we go through our assessment process, you know, is this player strong, but not explosive? Is this player, um, explosive, but not strong. Do they have poor mobility where mobility may, you know, ankle mobili- mobility may allow them to get into a better position, be more efficient, be able to, um, uh, express force and power, in the skating stride better. So we have this whole these decision trees that we work down. And again, that's that's our system is we we go down these these levels and say, you know, can you do this? Is your are you up to the threshold on force output? Yes or no? If no, okay, then you go into this bucket and we need to look at what's the next level? How else can we assess force? Are you strong on two legs? Are you strong on one leg? You know, defining what strong is in our setting. And we come all the way down these decision trees and we say, okay, this is where you're at. Uh, so within our, then within our, our training program, you know, we may have, um, we have right now, a bunch of our prospects are in and we have one global training program, but we have three or four different buckets that guys fall into. So everybody may be doing trap bar deadlift, if they're, you know, capable of doing that and, uh, biomechanically that's appropriate. Um, but some guys are going to be more on the force end of the spectrum. Some guys are strong, so they need to be more on the power end of the spectrum. So we can, within the team setting, we can adjust what they're doing, um, to be a little bit more pinpoint with them. And then we go back and we reassess every, you know, every six weeks or so we say, okay, did we actually move the needle? You know, has our system actually improved the things that we're trying to improve? Uh, If yes, okay, same thing. What's the next layer? What do we need to to work on at that point? If no, then we need to go back to the drawing board and figure out, well, why? Why did that thing not improve um, to get to the end game? So for us, systems are really about identifying what your key performance indicators are. And then working backwards and developing a model that attacks the general qualities and then more and more towards the specific qualities that we can influence.
0: Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So as Mike mentioned in the book, you do a really great job of, of kind of breaking down, okay, well, here's the quality, here's kind of the gold standard for for testing it. And then here's, if you don't have that, then you can do this. And then if you really want to go uh, on the on the really basic in low budget side, you can do this. And, and we lean into your work and refer to it quite a bit in our testing and, and data um, collection section of the course. The The question I have for you now is in terms of the vetting, of when a new test or a new technology makes it into your system so whether it's you at the highest level or it's the the fitness trainer who's saying is this does this have value to you because we're constantly getting sold hey come take this course on this testing system or hey buy this vbt unit or whatever it may be what would you suggest in terms of the vetting process to say this is this going to have value and make a, a an impact on moving the needle in your profession or as you professional
2: yeah i mean again to me it's the process comes back to asking the question what what do you need to improve right so for us in professional hockey again we've decided in our organization speed being a really important component um, and not that other things aren't you know so it could fall into other buckets but if a, a technology company comes to me and says, you know, we have a, a way to um, really influence, measure, test, train, uh, upper body, you know, pulling strength. I don't know. I'm making it up. Um, is that something a you know, layer one to me is like asking the question, like, is that something that matters to us? It might, it might not. In my setting, it probably doesn't like, Guys are generally strong upper body and ice hockey. You know, you don't have to go down the rabbit hole. It's pretty simple. Um, so layer one would just be ask the question, um, what do you, in your population, in your group, what do you need to improve? Um, and then look at, okay, if I need to improve X, what is on the market or does this tool fall into, uh, into the, the channel of assessing, measuring, training X? And if not, it's a, it's an easy, you know, that might be really cool. might be valid. It might be an unbelievable p- piece of technology, but it doesn't fit into what I need to, if it fits into that, then it's like the next question to me is, okay, what is this adding or replacing right? Velocity based training. We have gym aware, Okay. There's a lot of different tools on the market. Um, they're not better or worse, whatever. Um, if another velocity based training tool, you know, comes to me and says, Hey, we have this tool. It's unbelievable. It's way better than anything else on the market. I have to then bet it and say, and think to myself, okay, we already have something in this space that is useful for us. Is this new tool better somehow? Does this answer a different question that we're missing? Um, If not, then again, that might be unbelievable, but I'm going to pass. If it does, if there's something that it does that, what I currently use doesn't, then, you know, honestly, the next layer is probably, well, how much does it cost? (laughs) Because as much as even at our level, we have access to, you know, certain levels of budgets, they're not unlimited. And I have to make a case to my GM, my ownership, anytime we want to bring something in. Um, So those are sort of the, some of the questions that I go through when I I think about vetting different tools or technologies or, you know, systems or um, educational courses, anything like that. What is the first, what's the question I'm trying to answer? And then does it fit into that? Does it help me answer that question? Um, And if it does, then all the pieces of it, you know, is this logistically feasible? Does it fit into our budget? Does it really move the needle? Um, Is the juice worth the squeeze? Sometimes it's something that would be beneficial, but it's going to take me so much time to learn and then teach my staff and then utilize. And then we'd only really use it with one guy. And sometimes it's just not worth the squeeze that way as well.
0: And then what about reliability, not only vetting to make sure that this thing actually tests what we think it's going to test, but also in terms of, you know, I know sometimes the high tech, it doesn't always necessarily mean it's going to be more reliable in terms of the data it gives you versus some of the low tech options. Am I correct in that?
2: Yeah, no question. Uh, More expensive doesn't necessarily mean better. Um, If it's a tool that's in the same space as something we have, then I'm going to, and we get down the road of like really being interested in it. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna test it um, against what we're currently using. Um, So you know, again, I'll use velocity-based training tools. It's just a metric. Like if we're using, you know, we use GymAware. If somebody else comes in and we decide, hey, this is really worth looking at, then we're gonna put it up next to GymAware because you know we've used that long enough that that's valid and reliable for us, and we know where that's at. It's a gold standard. How does it compare? Like you know, if it if it's if it's not pretty damn tight from a reliability standpoint then um, it might not be worth changing to a new tool because even if it does all these other things, um, in our setting, if that changes the data set and all of a sudden you know something that was one meter per second is now 1.3 meters per second, well, that can have a big influence on things. And now all of our historical data is really hard to interpret. So um, reliability is really important in making sure that we're comparing uh, you know apples to apples and making sure we're on the same page is, is definitely part of the process.
0: All right. So I alluded to this before, but, you know, sports has become increasingly siloed and specialized, you know, and the the elephant in the room with with team sports is that the, the sport coaching staff and their level of buy-in and trust in your program can make or break your level of success. Talk about getting everyone on the same page. So no one silo is sabotaging the other.
2: Yeah. I mean, again, that's, that's a really big part of my role as the performance director is sort of bringing in all of the different groups and in the nhl it's it's or any professional sport it's it's really challenging because the reality is the organizations are really big so we have lots of different you know departments within hockey operations we have coaching staff we have goaltending coaches we have development staff we have skills coaches we have skating coaches we have strength coaches we have athletic trainers physical therapists massage therapists um we have travel coordinators like all of these different people and and um, different roles in the organization and, and we all need to be on the same page. So a, a big part of my, my job is to kind of sit into the middle of that and be a conduit for conversations and bringing the information to each group and bringing people together to have those conversations, because there's a wealth of experience and knowledge in all of these different individuals. Um, and the more that we can communicate um, and collaborate, the more we can learn from each other, push each other further, grow as an organization and as a staff so um you know how do we do that it's informal process i make sure i you know every room in the in the facility i make sure that i touch on you know on a daily basis i'm constantly kind of wandering the halls and making sure i'm communicating with people from a formal perspective you know staff meetings are obviously um something that takes place on a daily or weekly basis Um, a lot of reporting all of the sports science data is is reported out you know on a daily basis and goes to the coaching staff and the general manager, the medical group, and uh, and then we utilize uh, Microsoft Teams as our sort of athlete management system. So that's our centralized hub for all of our all of our communication, all of our information, all of our data. It goes into one place, uh, and everybody has access to that. So regardless of where where you sit in the organization or what your role is, you have access into this centralized hub where um, you can pull on data or you can communicate with somebody else and ask questions and, and learn from each other.
0: That's awesome. And and I have two parts to follow up with that. One is in terms of getting everybody on the same page in terms of messaging. And, and for those who are listening, who maybe you're not in a high performance setting or team setting, I even think about you know one of the first gyms I worked at uh, where we had chiropractic care, we had group fitness, we had nutrition, and they all would just basically bash the other departments. And the nutritionists would say, well, don't go to group fitness. Those classes don't do what they say they do. And the group fitness people say, don't go to the personal trainers because they're all meatheads. And the personal trainers say that chiropractor is a quack. And then so the person would end up saying, you know what, you're all idiots and wouldn't go to anybody. And so... So, getting people on the same page in terms of messaging. So uh, if I'm a player and I'm seeing four it's very possible. I'm seeing four, five, six of these individuals over the course of my day, from the people in the training room to the to the strength staff to the coach staff, that I'm getting the same message throughout the you know, throughout the building. Um, talk a little bit about how everybody's kind of synonymous in terms of how what we share and what we don't share and how that's being shared with the with the athlete.
2: Yeah, it starts with having a a centralized vision um, for what we believe in, how we operate, um, how we communicate. So that's that's step number one is making sure that all those different departments, strength conditioning, medical, nutrition, um, you know, et cetera, that we start with a, a shared vision and a shared mission. So that that's kind of, I, I, I talked about that being our North Star, regardless of what your individual role is within the organization um, that's the North star. That's what we're trying to do. Um, so when the athlete comes and they see met, you know, somebody on the medical side, or they come down and they see somebody in the gym, um, we have a, a collective and collaborative centralized vision for who we are as a, as a group, what our philosophy is and, and what we're trying to do. Um, and then it really is about, you know, it's, it's cliche and it's simple to say, but it's about communication. It's, you know, we meet with our our medical staff and our, our uh, nutritionists and, and uh, dietitian every single morning just to go over, Hey, this is what's coming in. This is what the day's going to look like. You know, these are our injured guys. This is who's taking the lead on that. Um, this is, you know, somebody needs to jump in over here. We need some help in this area um, to try to be as, as smooth and seamless on the surface as possible. Like we joke all the time. Like we want to look like uh, a duck swimming across a lake, like on the top, We are just the, the athlete sees things are just smooth and calm and pretty. And underneath we are paddling like hell trying to figure shit out and stay ahead of everything. And, um, but we want the athlete to see smooth and, and steady. And so that's, that's, that's kind of the goal, but it starts with that collective vision. And then it is really just about constant communication. Um, and again, in my role, like I'm the guy that bumps up and down, you know, the gym is on the bottom floor, the training room is on the top floor. Um, the rank is across the street. So I'm I float around and bump around and make sure that uh, that that everybody's on the same page, field any questions. And then again, we use that centralized platform so that you know we can communicate through there and get notes on people and, and be up to date with what's going on.
0: And then the second part of that is is from I know from the little bit that I've seen in my experience working the NFL, it's a little bit of chicken and the egg in terms of you'd really need the people up top to buy in from, you know, GM, and especially that head coach to buy in. And it's like, do you get him to buy in? So he adapts to what you're trying to do and your message? Or do you have to follow them? And, and the reason why I'm saying that is is not only from my experience, but as you're saying all this stuff, I'm like, imagine Devin has all this stuff, all this knowledge, all these tools, all these uh things available to him and he gets a head coach who's like watch miracle too many times he's got the lights off blowing the whistle going again and he just screwed up three months worth of work right so how much do we have to encounter that you know whether it's pro level or even down to the to the lowest levels competing against the the overzealous you know we need to make more mentally tough athletes by beating the hell out of
2: yeah that's an issue there's no question um I've been through a couple of head coaches here, um, both unbelievable coaches, unbelievable people. Fortunate for me, both really bought into what we were doing and on the same page. But anytime you have change, the process can start all over again. Um, I think, you know, when you're dealing with those scenarios, um, it's important, you know, I guess two things come to mind. One, it's really important for us as practitioners to remember in the team setting uh, and to reiterate this to the coach, especially when you're trying to create – trust and buy-in it's his team like if we lose like he's the first person that's getting fired so whatever he decides needs to happen whether i agree with it or not my job's to to voice that uh to give him all of the information possible on our end of things and provide my you know my my expertise and my opinion and then when we walk out the door and he's decided not to do it okay we're on board and then i'm going to fight that good fight again the next day um but it's important for him to know that that we're here to support him uh, or or them, the coaching staff. And um, you know, we, we recognize that it's, it's their team that helps to create that trust and buy-in so that then, you know, if that is the scenario and then they go out and they smash that guy and you come back the next day and you say, okay, we did that. And now, you know, we've got three hip flexor strains and those guys are going to miss practice. And so today, You know, I I recommend that this is what the you know the training load, the player load goal is for practice, and then he says, "Nope, we're going to do it this way." You know, you keep going through that process, and hopefully, you create some buy-in and some trust. Again, maybe not always. Um, I've been fortunate in my career that that I've had great coaches that that do that, Um, but it, it certainly can be you know a challenge, and especially when you have more and more practitioners. I know, you know, for Mike, like in the MMA world, like. You could have coaches and, you know, trainers and gurus and things all over the place that you just have no influence over what they're doing. And so sometimes the reality is it's triage and on the back end, we have to adjust on our end and say, well, we were going to have post game lift today, um, but guys are banged up this week and we went to overtime and we're really tired. And you know what, we're going to scrap it. We're going to live to fight another day and we're going to move forward. Um, And the process is probably never perfect, but it's just always about that communication collaboration and then, um hopefully being humble enough on our end to to know that we are not the show and if we need need to adjust or back off then that's what we need
1: to do so devin i'm going to i'm going to sort of pick your brain here uh and it's going to have uh i guess i know where the answer is going to sort of come from but uh i still want to ask it anyway because i feel like a lot of people find this uh, pretty interesting so um you know you're you're clearly working with the best hockey players uh you know in the world you're in the nhl um mm-hmm. And there are a lot of young athletes um, and also the parents of young athletes that think that the the answer to becoming a professional athlete is 24-7 hockey, um, 12 months out of the year. Um, and, and the thing that I find very ironic is that, you know, a lot of these kids are just all year round, go, 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 play, play, play. And they think that that is what it's like to, you know, train like a professional athlete. And that's what they think is the path to get there. But the funny thing is, and we all know this, is that when you are training professional athletes, Eric's, you know, worked in the NFL for, for a decade. You're in NHL. I work with uh, guys in the UFC. Training a professional athlete, when when those athletes pay their bills and, and, and feed their family with their body, you can't beat the hell out of them. You can't injure them. You can't beat your chest and say, rah, 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 you need to do more. Because if you injure them, in the weight room, that's on you. And, and I think a lot of people don't understand that training like a professional athlete means you do have an off season, which means you do regulate what you are supposed to be regulating. And it's just not all gas pedal. Where, where do you think this disconnect came from? Like, there's such a huge disconnect from the way that strength and conditioning is sort of started in, you know, middle school, high school, even, and even college. And then you know, as we get to pro, it seems like there's a little bit more common sense, but why do you think so many people think that the path is just go, go, go gas pedal down?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know where it comes from, I guess, but it's that idea more is better and more is not, more is not better. Better is better. And a lot of cases, less is better. Um, you know, we we operate on a very minimal effective dose sort of approach. Um, and again, it, you know, you, you named it if if a if a professional hockey player gets hurt in the weight room um a i'm getting fired right off the bat b this is their profession like their job is hockey it's not it's not how much can you squat we need to make sure that they can squat enough to improve those kpis and to keep them as healthy as possible and be robust but it's not to do as much as we can do it's so that we can get them on the ice in the season and they can practice every day and perform every day um I think, again, I think you're right. Like at the highest levels, I think, you know, that's the general approach because once you're fortunate enough to get to this level, then, you know, Hey, if I, if I screw this guy up, you know, I can't really improve, you know, maybe I I can't improve this guy that much. He's already the third best player in the entire world, but I could screw him up. So make sure that you don't screw him up. I think at lower levels, I think it's still such a, a backwards mindset of more, more is better. And you know, you guys know you get a kid at 14 15 years old any type of training is going to make that kid better so it's really easy if that's your worldview as a, as a trainer or as a strength coach and you're working with you know youth athletes at that level or or you know younger you know high school athletes um, if you don't have that experience or that that perspective of other levels um, where it's maybe a lot chall- more challenging to get people better you know you can do anything to a 16-year-old that's never trained and they're going to get better, they're going to get better faster. And so it's like, yeah, another set, another eight reps, another 100 pounds, like that's, oh, they got better. Look at that. And they're going to get better because they're 16 and they got testosterone blowing through their veins and growth hormone coming out the yin-yang. And then they're going to get to a point where they're not going to get better with more. And then you're like scratching your head because, well, more was better. Um, So I don't know if that's where that mindset comes from, it's certainly still a challenge in our industry um, and in our field in general. I think, you know, sport coaches can be very much the same way. More is not better, better is better. And it's it's about understanding or figuring out, you know, to me at least, what's the absolute least that we can do to move the needle? And then you get to that point and you assess, you know, at different times of the year, maybe you are going to do a little more and push a little more, a little less, but uh, very rarely is it is it just more is better.
0: I think maybe could some of this come from where we like the hero story of, you know, this, you know, the Jerry Rice who ran up, you know, that hill for hours and hours and hours, or we love to hear, you know, these legendary training stories of how this guy left the high school dance so he could run laps, you know, and, and because he didn't have any friends and look at him now, he's a, he's one of the greatest ever. But they don't understand. There's there's a level of survivorship bias to that. That there's a lot of kids who left high school dance, ran laps, and then now they're accountants or they're you know they're working you know at Best Buy because they there's probably a lot more of those than there are ones that we're seeing a thirty for thirty or a, a Netflix special
2: about, right? Oh, that, without without uh, without a doubt, that's a great point. It's like uh, it's like when somebody says, "Well, you know, I used to be able to." When I was a kid, I didn't have to wear a seatbelt and I could run around in the back of the station wagon and I'm fine. And it's like, yeah, and all the 400 other kids that did that are all dead. <laughs> like, you survived. You're, good job. You're, you lucked yeah. out. You're the one. You know, it's the same thing with the athletes. Like that guy that, you know, Jerry Rice was going to be Jerry Rice. Whether he did that or not, he was Jerry Rice. Like he was an absolute yeah. freak of nature. And I think that's where, when you look at the top, you know, 0.05% of athletes and what did they do? A lot of times they were going to be here, whether they did the right thing or the wrong thing. And chances are little Johnny is not the top 0.5 percent So doing the wrong thing is going to be pretty detrimental.
0: A hundred percent. So before we wrap up, Mike, any closing thoughts on your end?
1: No, I mean, Devin, I miss seeing your face, man. Next time you come up to the Boston area, we got to make sure we break some bread and, uh, we gotta hit up some, uh, get some of those good IPAs. I don't know how good they are on the West Coast, but I, I have a feeling I they don't compete
2: with the East Coast. It's tough, man. It's it's uh it's probably better for my liver being here, but it's it's, uh, it's <laughs> tough. I don't enjoy them as much.
1: Yeah, no, 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 no. But uh, no, man, it's good to it's good to see your face. It's been a long time, and uh, yeah, I'm glad you're doing well, man. And uh, you know, thank you for coming on. It's it's always good to talk shop, and uh, I'd love to have you on again and. Uh, it's always good to see your face and and i hope you're doing well but but eric uh, why don't you close this up my friend absolutely so before we wrap things up so anything
0: new and exciting that you got going or 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 new projects you're working on
2: no uh, honestly nothing kind of new in the pipeline just chipping away um and what we're doing they keep me keep me locked away here in the in the dungeon pretty well at this level so i don't get out very often but uh just chipping away we have our our development camp is coming up with our prospects and the draft is this week. So kind of focus on those things.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And then the the one takeaway, I hope everybody gets when you hear someone um, like Devin at this level, or in a couple of weeks we have Eric Cressy coming on or people who are working at this level for the guy who's home, like, Pete from Yonkers, who wants to call into the to the to the sports radio station, say fire the training staff because their favorite player pulled a hamstring. Realize how much goes in to that person lacing up their skates and playing a game um, and how many decisions have to get made, how many different people are involved. And, and, and it's not as simple as you think of, hey, they just need to do more of this and they'd all be better. So uh, I hopefully that was the take-home message because we didn't even scratch the surface of all that Devin has to probably deal with on a daily basis. But thank you again, man, for coming on. It was absolutely fantastic. And we're going to put some links up to, to make sure people check out the book as well because uh, it's definitely great stuff.
2: I appreciate it, guys. It was a lot of fun. Let's definitely do it again.
0: Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.PrinciplesOfProgramDesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.